Hello and welcome back to the Archives, our incomplete episode 37, Dark Lord, The Rise of Darth Vader by James Luceno. My name is Jonah and today we're going to be diving right into the back of the book. From the site of Anakin Skywalker's last stand, where he sought to destroy his friend and former master, Obi-Wan Kenobi, a fearsome specter in black has risen. Once the most powerful knight ever known to the Jedi Order, he is now a disciple of the Dark Side, a lord of the dreaded Sith, and the avenging right hand of the galaxy's ruthless new emperor. Meanwhile, on the outer rim world of Murkana, Jedi Masters Roan Shrine and Bol Chattak and Padawan Oli Starstone are leading a charge on a separatist stronghold, unaware that the tide has turned against them. Although the three narrowly elude execution, the deadliest threat still rests in the hideously swift and lethal crimson lightsaber of Darth Vader, behind whose brooding mask lies a shattered heart, a poisoned soul, and a cunning, twisted mind hell-bent on vengeance. For the handful of scattered Jedi hunted across space, survival is imperative if the light side of the Force is to be protected and the galaxy reclaimed. First half, reasonable. Second half, they're not leading the charge so much as participating in an assault and then leading a surgical strike to eliminate the need for bombardment, and the tide hasn't turned at that point, it's after they finish the op that Order 66 is called, but it's one of the better ones, I guess? I mean, the brooding mask with the shattered heart, poisoned soul, and cunning twisted mind is a little bit dramatic, but I mean, I guess that suits Anakin Skywalker turned Darth Vader, so... Yeah, let's let's get in. Should you read this? It is an excellent capstone to the story of Anakin Skywalker and really does a great job of introducing Vader. So if either of those characters appeals to you, I'd recommend it. It also delves into the philosophy of lesser-known Jedi, and so if you're just interested in Jedi as well, I'd recommend it on that front as well. What are we going to talk about? Well, as usual, we're going to start off with the plot. Uh, we're going to break down the final fall of Anakin and the rise of Vader. We're going to talk about Rome's shrine and some parallels between him and Vader. And touch upon the moral responsibility of the Jedi in a post-Order 66 galaxy, as well as the machinations of Palpatine and a couple miscellaneous bits and bobs along the way. We start our story, as the back of the book says, on Mercana, home to Pasal Argente, and the headquarters of the Corporate Alliance. The Republic is closing in on the leadership of the Separatists in multiple sieges across the Outer Rim. In fact, they've scared most of the leaders off, and Palpatine ordered them to meet all on Mustafar, where Anakin murdered them all. That's already happened when this story starts, but, you know, we can pretend that they still exist and the sieges are still relevant. Ron Shrine, a Jedi Master who has lost two apprentices during the war, along with Bol Shatek and her Padawan, Oli Starstone, are riding down with some clones, including Commander Salvo. Uh, shield Generator is in the Separatist Med Center as a defensive layer, just making sure that the Republic's not going to commit war crimes. Uh, Climber, a Republic commando who is properly represented, to my great and utter delight, believes that they can infiltrate and destroy. Salvo just wants to blast it from space and damn the collateral. Shrine overrides. They go in, disable the shield generator. On the way out, Salvo orders relays Order 66 to Climber, uh, who's the commander of Ion Squad, who does not accept the order uh, and ambushes Salvo's team instead and allows the Jedi to flee. Climber sees Shrine as a friend, and Salvo didn't authenticate the Order or even actually say Order 66, just ambush the Jedi. Uh, it's kind of weird that Palpatine didn't come through to Climber, because I think the other Republic Commando squads got it direct. But I, I know that, like, it definitely didn't go to every single clone, at least in this canon. It just went to the commanders, and the commanders are like, alright, Order 66, let's go. 
Um, and so there's some time delay and some issuing of orders, but it, it, it's just very weird that it happened this way. But of course it makes sense because it allows for the story to happen in this way. The Jedi attempt to flee and are on the landing platform about to commandeer a vessel when the war ends and the Separatist droids shut down. And so the fog of war is stripped away. Um, as they are dressed as Separatist mercenaries, they're just like, well, if we try and do anything, we'll just get shot. So we might as well surrender. Shrine ditches his comlic lightsaber, datapad, anything linking him to the Order, and tells Bull and Oli to do the same. Since they're already in the uniforms of Separatist mercs, they simply surrender and are imprisoned by clones who don't know them. A few months later, which is convenient so that the majority of this book actually does take place after the events of Kenobi, the prisoners are rounded up for the landing of an agent of the Emperor, one Doth Vader. He calls up Clymer and the rest of Ion Squad and demands to know what happened. Clymer tells him that they didn't like the order and chose to disobey it. He strikes down two of the squad, but the other two flee, chased by members of the 501st. Uh, to this, Vader's like, now I'm demonstrating to you that I am not a Jedi, telling the other clones of the 32nd Airborne, I believe, that's on Mercana. He's just like, hey, not a Jedi. Just being clear, you saw the lightsaber, not a Jedi, things are different here. Uh, and Bull Shatak reveals herself. He says, I am no Jedi, and she says, but I am, and steps forward, and she's like, alright. Vader's like, lightsaber, let's duel, uh, and cuts her down pretty quickly. She does get a cut in on his arm, but is defeated and killed. Shrine holds back Oli, and... They're escorted aboard prisoner transports. Shrine uses a minor mind trick on the guards, allowing the two of them to flee. They reach out to Cash Garlon, a Twi'lek Black Sun Vigo. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Black Sun, they're a criminal organization who we've touched upon in a couple places, but haven't really delved into that much. And Vigo is a high-ranking lieutenant, or maybe... I, I don't think it's quite Dawn. It might be a Dawn level. Like, it's somebody who's at near the top of the organizational chart. Um, he is an old contact of Shrine's. Uh, Shrine did some work on Mercana previously and knew Cash through that. Uh, and Cash helps arrange a way off-planet for them. They manage to escape through misdirection of Vader and his Star Destroyer, and they are directed towards the smuggler vessel of the Drunk Dancer, which is captained by Jula Shrine, Roan's mother. With some debate, uh, Roan is convinced to let Oli activate her Jedi beacon to reach out to other potential survivors. The beacon system is a special frequency reserved for Jedi use. It's been previously mentioned. It's how Vader and the 501st initially programmed the Come Hither call during Order 66 to the Jedi Temple, and how Yoda and Obi-Wan later warned Jedi away. Roan and Oli and the smugglers make contact with some surviving Jedi and schedule a meet. They do meet there, but there are several ARC-170s and a Republic light cruiser joining the fight. Uh, I learned that ARC, in this case, stands for Aggressive Reconnaissance, which has some overlap with the philosophies of Advanced Recon Commandos, which are a different type of ARC in the Clone Army. Uh, Shrine's tactics and understanding of how clones operate and think gives the smugglers and the Jedi very good odds, but they can't take on the cruiser because they're just simply outgunned. They're able to take the Jedi vessel on board, uh, it's a commandeered troop transport, and they jump to hyperspace and relative safety. There are six Jedi aboard the transport. Originally there were ten, but four died on their way there or since they gathered together. Uh, 
Jedi Knight Siadem Forte and his Padawan, a recently blinded Togruta named Darren Nalual. Closi Anno, who is a Chalactan Padawan, uh, similar in philosophy and faith as Depa Balaba. Uh, Closi lost her master. Iwil Kulka, who is a Hodin, lost his Padawan. And then Jambe Lu and Nam Porf, who are two agricultural core Jedi. They're Force sensitives who never made it. They never became Padawans or were accepted as knights, but they are Force-sensitive. They are, all told, not an impressive lot of Jedi. Oli Starstone, still believing in the Jedi Order and the work they do, convinces the rest of the Jedi, excepting Roan, to head to a Separatist outpost where Philly Bitters, the tech and communications specialist for the Dancer, is able to utilize the Jedi Beacon to access the Temple databanks to ID the planets Jedi were on at the end of the war so they can start to hunt for survivors. Of course, the Empire's had their hands on this data for literal months, and Vader and Armand Sard, head of Imperial Intelligence, are literally in the temple when this ping goes off, so they know where this group of rogue Jedi are. Clones are ordered to attack this uh, Separatist outpost that they're hanging out in. However, turning on the base reactivated its local droid defenders. This initially causes problems for our intrepid heroes, but is later used to slow down the clones while the Jedi escape. Roan splits ways with the other Jedi, opting to stay with Jula and the Dancers. Feely goes with the survivors, not only to help them sift through data, but also to temper Starstone's zeal with someone who cares about her and who she might develop feelings for, and as a route of communication. Ronan and the others go to Alderaan to... Uh, execute a Cash Garland job. He did die shortly after Mercana, caught up with by Darth Vader and executed, but the job is still good, helping Senator Fang Zar, uh, somebody who is outspoken against Palpatine, get back to his home planet. Fang Zar uh, is one of the 2000, signer of the Petition of the 2000, uh, Duel Bronk from the short story Incognito at the end of Kenobi, was also a signatory of the Petition of 2000, which is essentially just 2000 senators who are like, Palpatine, you're a fascist. Palpatine, not a fan of this, uh, and had questions for Senator Fang Zar, who fled Coruscant when asked not to leave by Imperial security. Uh, and so the Empire's chasing him down. Fang Zar doesn't want to create a diplomatic incident, and so he wants to be extracted or removed from Alderaan rather than asking Bail Organa to help him out in any way, shape, or form. The job does hit a few snags, as there are anti-imperial protests, including some imperial plants as rabble-rousers. Uh, Roan and the others do get into the palace, uh, as Fangzar is still a guest of Bail Organa, but in trying to get to their destination, they are misled by a pair of droids, R2-D2 and C-3PO. More impactfully, uh, Darth Vader shows up and catches sight of Roan Shrine on a holocam and joins the hunt personally. He was initially there just to detain Fang Zar, but a Jedi's too good of prey to just let that ride. Uh, they're almost able to escape flawlessly, with Shrine taking a few shots at Vader, who's able to deflect them with both lightsaber and bare hand, but Vader throws his lightsaber, cutting into both Zar and Jula. Zar dies, but Jula is able to recover. Uh, they do escape, but it's not a great op for them. 
The Jedi, now led by Olid, despite not having the ranking position among them, go to Kashyyyk to find out what happened to Luminar Unduli, Yoda, and Quinlan Voss. Over the past couple weeks or months, they've had zero success in finding survivors, or even hints of survivors, or any evidence at all that any Jedi survived at all whatsoever. Uh, they are met by very stern Wookiees who ask very pointed questions about strangers asking about Jedi. Starstone outs herself as a Jedi, and they're welcome. The Wookiees are friends of the Jedi and not friends of the Empire. They meet Chief Tarful and Chewbacca. It's at this point that the Empire attacks, using the presence of Jedi as a pretense for a planetary invasion. Uh, happens to be that there's some secret project that's behind on construction and the Empire needs laborers. I mean, slaves. Um, so that's why they're attacking, but the Jedi being there is a nice convenient excuse to be like, look, rebels and rebel activity and dissenters. The Wookiees resist, as do the Jedi, but it's hard to stand against the might of the Empire. And then Vader appears. He quickly kills Knights Forte and Kulka, uh, amputates limbs or otherwise incapacitates Jambelu, Namporf, and Klosiano, the other combat-ready apprentices. The only other one, Nulawul, is blind and so not really able to engage in combat. Oli is about to fight him when Shrine appears, and she's given space and time to flee. Shrine fights Vader and is able to hold his own. Anakin is hindered by the suit, but not as much as he was on Morkana, but still has to perfectly protect his breathing regulator and has limited range of movement and vision. Shrine is able to touch the Force again. He'd been becoming disillusioned with the Jedi and the Force for a while and losing touch, and is able to regain it in his fight with Vader. However, Vader is also able to find his touchstone and return to the Force as well, and eliminate the last few lingering powerful doubts about his role as Palpatine's public fist and his place as a Sith, and is able to bring the Force to bear, and pummels Shrine and kills him. Not until he's revealed that he is Anakin Skywalker, the last of the Chosen Jedi, and the 21st Jedi to leave the Jedi Order, and all sorts of stuff, and Jerome's just like, Wow, that's incredible! Also, I'm about to die! Nobody's gonna know your secrets! Which is, I mean, it's a way for Anakin to vent, and I mean, that's probably how Anakin gets his therapy from here on out. He tells people he's about to kill all of his feelings, and he's like, well, that makes me feel better, and goes on with his life. That's a disturbing thought. The other Jedi are able to escape as Philly Bitters re-enables one of the Separatist hulks in space, which was set to self-destruct and crash into Kashyyyk at the end of the war, before it was deactivated when peace was declared. Uh, and is able to re-aim it at the interdictor cruiser, keeping the refugees from fleeing into hyperspace. In the prologue, Palpatine gives license to Tarkin to build a relationship with Vader and promises to keep an eye out for more slaves for that secret project of his. The surviving Jedi decide that they can't be public anymore, they just cause destruction. One of them is going to join a flight academy to sow distent, others are going to try to get into Imperial research projects and other sorts of things like that. They're essentially attempting what Cal Scarada and his people did, Baslan Shevla, uh, a tactical disappearance, but way less practiced and smooth. Vader fixes his goal in mind, overthrow Palpatine and find true freedom. Obi-Wan, in the deserts of Tatooine, learns of Vader's survival. He has his own reason for surviving, keeping Luke alive, but he learns that Anakin is alive and that throws him disastrously. He thought Vader was dead, and now he questions his actions on Mustafar even more, and has even more doubts about what he's doing. 
Throughout the story, we also get a few chapters from the perspective of Bail Organa, but those are much, much less frequent and much less exciting because he has slightly less inner turmoil than Anakin or Roan Shrine. It is interesting, though, because Bale knew Padme and was close friends to Obi-Wan, and he knows the danger a Sith represents. I mean, he went to a Sith temple in wild space, not super on purpose, but he knows the dangers and forgets that other politicians, including Mon Mothma and General Garmbel Iblis, or Senator Garmbel Iblis of Corellia, don't have those connections or that knowledge, and so don't understand the threat that they're facing. So, in the epilogue, Bale defends his inaction to Mon Mothma, who wants immediate rebellion, while Bale says they need to avoid taking major risks. This connects to elements that we get in Imperial Commando 501st, where Palpatine is worried about immediate revolution because his rate of growth is bigger than what any rebels can manage, and so he's weakest now. Of course, also right now, a lot of people in the Empire don't see the oppression, and so they see no reason to rebel. They don't know what a Sith means for them. They're just like, look, it hasn't hurt me. It hasn't hurt my planet yet. Why would I risk my life fighting for something? It's just a new coat of paint on the same old corrupt republic. I don't really give a crap. Uh, of course, then they're going to learn the dangers of authoritarianism and fascism and that sort of good thing. But moving on. Uh, throughout the story, we also do get frequent scenes of Vader, either commanding Imperials, speaking with his master, or facing introspection. There's not a lot of narrative meat in those moments, so I haven't discussed them, but there is a lot of growth, so we'll get into that more during the analysis. But for pretty much every major beat in the story, we get a few pages from Vader's perspective, so he's one of the most significant point of views in the story, and is honestly probably the reason to read the book. The narrative arc of the story isn't super thrilling. I mean, it's more or less a meaningless goose chase. A character that we didn't know before the beginning of the book is our primary protagonist, Roan Shrine, and by the end of the book, he's dead. Uh, and so there's no connection to the outside lore other than the evolution of Vader or Anakin into Vader, the fall of Anakin, his doubts, his fears, his beliefs, his excuses and rationalizations, and you get that throughout. And as I mentioned in uh, Labyrinth of Evil and mentioned many, many, many times over in my analysis of Darth Plagueis, that's kind of where James Luceno shines, talking about characters and their motivations and their long-term thoughts and feelings and plans. So that's, that's the reason to read this book and one of the reasons I recommend it. It's not as in-depth as Plagueis. You don't get as much of an ideology of the Sith as you do there, but it's still very good in that regard. So, let's dive right into that analysis. We're going to start with Roan Shrine. Roan has a lot of cynicism. He's dismissive of the Council and believes that there are likely few, if any, other survivors of Order 66. He's focused on surviving himself, and he's practical about it. He ditches his beacon and lightsaber pretty comfortably on Mercado, being like, I, I can get a new comlink if I really need one, I can get a new lightsaber if I need one, or craft a new lightsaber if I need one, uh, but these will identify me as a Jedi and get me killed. That's worth less than... I would rather be alive and unarmed than dead and armed. That doesn't help anybody. Uh, this is a sharp comparison to Starstone's unending optimism. She always has a theory or a hope that there's a way out until the end of the book where she realizes she's going to have to work to make hope for others rather than hope that others can support her. 
However, it's not doom and gloom from him that creates his cynicism or pessimism. It's intentful realism. He chooses not to console Starstone after Bolshatek dies and they flee Mercana. She has to groan to her own somehow, and being coddled won't help her. And he judges, correctly, that she has the strength to make it through on her own. He also discards ideas of attachment from the Jedi Order. He rejected being on the Acquisitions team. He has the ability to sense forcefulness and decline kidnapping babies. But he's supportive of Uli Starstone maybe starting something with Philly Bitters. He thinks that that external attachment would do her good and temper her zealotry. But he's also talking with his mother and being like, yes, this seems like a good direction to go. I think that it is reasonable to take this and balance this relationship. He, like Vader, has lost some of his connection with the Force. His pessimism comes with a decrease in his own forcefulness and his ability to use it. He doesn't quite recover it, but regains his connection to a degree on Kashyyyk when he recommits to, for lack of a better term, Jedi-like actions. At the same time, that's when Vader finds his own and connects to the dark side more fully. He uses the Force to rip apart wooden structures of Kashyyyk and pummel shrine, uh, Vader, no longer reliant or diminished by his suit or circumstances, and takes the power that he wants. Roan wonders if his loss of connection is because of his own loss of faith or because of general corruption in the Force. He lost two Padawans to the war and felt like the war was the wrong direction, so lost faith in the Force. But if the Sith, particularly Palpatine as Sidious and Vader or Dooku, were corrupting the Force as a whole... That would also explain his inability to contact it because it was weaker, not just him being weaker. Um, but he also thinks that if he's lost the Force, that just makes it easier to become a civilian. Of course, he ends up dying to Vader before he gets the opportunity to really turn Civi. Speaking of Vader, I want to touch on... I mean, I'm going to start with his suit because that's an important aspect of this story. At this point... The armor is new to Vader, and it's poorly constructed and a prison. Vader is reliant on the suit to live, and so he's reliant on the technology that Palpatine allows him, and his initial suit is imbalanced and slow and clumsy. He's barely able to fend off Bolshatek, who's not particularly known for her skill with a lightsaber, and he's the blade master who is able to defeat Dooku and held off Obi-Wan in a fight. Uh, his bodysuit catches on the joints of the armor and prosthetics. The boots are heavy, rooting him to the ground and canted forward, so he's imbalanced. The hands don't have good feedback, so it's hard to feel the saber in his hand and control it. The cape and chest armor restrict the movement of his shoulders, so he can't raise the blade as high. The helmet has filters to prevent further damage to his eyes, but still restrict his vision and make it difficult for him to look down or even up, and his peripherals are damaged. The hearing sensors are too sensitive and pick up too much, not sensitive enough, so the sound quality is poor. Uh, this means, among other things, his fighting style changes. He has to focus a bit less on the somewhat acrobatic style he had before, but now defend his core and strike strongly, leaning further into Gemso uh, Form 5. It also means that... I mean, it's interesting, because he does get to apply his own experience and knowledge as a tinker to the suit over the course of the book. We don't see any scenes of it, but he does get to lay his hands on it. It's fascinating that his helmet is so much worse than a clone's helmet. Um, he doesn't have nearly the resources that clones have. Um, 
and it'd be really cool to have him have that gear rather than just a filter over his eyes because the clone helmets come with the whole heads-up display keeping track of various vitals able to patch in other communications give them other perspectives give them full 360 degree view tag enemies and objectives and it'd be fascinating to see anakin with that gear anyways uh, less living body losing his limbs also means that there's less living force or at least that's how he feels and the force is a lot of self-actualization However, throughout the story, we get a lot of Anakin coming through. We get uncertainty and disappointment, regret. He's been told that he has to rein in his feelings, and he's finally letting loose and confronting them, and not at all in a healthy way, but at least he's able to express emotion a bit more. He feels the title, The Hero with No Fear, last mentioned in Labyrinth of Evil, died on Coruscant, that Anakin died there, and I don't think that's accurate. There's still that spark of questioning youth with him at least at the point when he's having this thought. Because we, we also get some of that sassiness. In his dealings with Cash Garland, he opens with, make yourself comfortable, and responds to Cash asking, huh, so it's going to be like that? With, yeah, like that. Which is just very cocky teen Anakin, and not at all the stern and stoic Vader that we have later. The Anakin still lives in Vader at this time. Uh, he hasn't lost that edge of personality. But he also realizes that he needs to claim the respect of the generals of the Empire. And becomes a more stoic figure. One who brooks no argument. And he's able to leverage the mystery of the armor and the helmet in a way that hides his age. Which gives him a little bit more authority because during the war he was often disregarded because of his relative youth there's also his mechanist side he does get to put in some upgrades to the suit himself and he sends specs to Sinar for his starfighter similar to how he repaired his own ships and sent specs to the republic naval yards with suggestions for fleet-wide upgrades during the clone Wars. so anakin is still in there we also get Anakin's excuses and rationalizations for his attack on the temple. For the younglings, they were orphans without family or friends, and better off dead, without the suffering that they'll go through as Jedi. The rest, because the Jedi wouldn't be prepared to accept his choices, the ones he knows are correct, like killing Windu to, Windu to be able to save Padme, and the Jedi wouldn't be open to Padme and Anakin ruling the Republic. And Vader doesn't need those excuses or rationalizations. Vader did what Vader did because Vader said, this is what I'm going to do. Anakin is the one who's coming up with these rationalizations. But I really like the alternate universe idea of Anakin and Padme ruling. Imagine Anakin somehow convinces Padme to return after Mustafar, kills Obi-Wan and then Palpatine, and instills Padme as Empress, and somehow gets her to accept the role Maybe some sort of, look, it's temporary, the Senate needs an emperor, we've created an empire, you're not gonna, like, and just, like, push her into that role and just turn her to the dark side a little bit, that'd be a fun story. Anyways, Anakin still sees that the Jedi were corrupt, or believes that the Jedi were corrupt. Self-serving grandiosity and attachment to power which is, in his mind, the reason all orders fall in time. They should have been more open to attachment to others, his attachment to Padme in particular, and less attached to the status quo. Power ended up controlling them rather than them controlling power. 
and Anakin sees himself now controlling the power that the Jedi held on to. Furthermore, throughout that, the Jedi of the Temple didn't respect Anakin and his power. He could control it. Therefore, it's better than them, because they couldn't control the power as well as he could. Of course, he's obviously not able to control the power, because, you know, fell to the dark side and all that. But he's ignoring that as a failing, because he sees the dark side as a victory now. Speaking of what-ifs, what if Anakin discovers Leia on Alderaan? There's a scene where Bale is desperately trying to hide or keep Leia distant from visiting Vader, and I'm curious to know what would have happened then. It's another AU time, but it would have ended poorly for everyone who isn't Anakin. He's paranoid and angry, so he would have struck against Bale immediately. Why? How dare you hide my child from me? Um, and he'd strike against out against Palpatine quickly because Palpatine's like I didn't know he's like well then you're not omniscient and so you're useless to me um and similarly if Palpatine's like oh I knew the whole time he's like you knew the whole time and didn't tell me you kept my child from me I'm gonna murder you uh so he Vader might lose the fight with Palpatine he in fact probably would uh and so then Palpatine raises Leia maybe he discovers Luke is alive too and figures out where he is but again it'd be interested seeing uh, leia raised as the heir to the empire maybe this is how the twins the second or third episode from the visions animated series got its start i think it was second or third it was definitely called the twins anyways um vader or anakin really compares himself to grievous and so does everyone else he's a commander of the military more machine than flesh has an intimidating visage has a breathing problem, uh, has a hidden history, wields a lightsaber, and has a vendetta against Jedi. It's not a flattering comparison because Grievous was a pawn and a tool, and Anakin knows that Grievous was a pawn and a tool, uh, despite only facing him in Revenge of the Sith. And Anakin despises Grievous as weak and cowardly, um, or the more Vader side of Anakin does. Uh, the more Jedi side of Anakin maybe pities him, but I don't think Anakin really ever pitied Grievous. It was just, you are my enemy, I will kill you. Uh, and so now being turned into his enemy is a cruel twist of fate or a mockery of his enemy at best. Uh, similar to the fate of Orin Galt at the end of Kenobi. Um, now, in the final fight between Vader and Roan, both there's some, there are a lot of parallels. Both are using unfamiliar weapons. Vader using a newly constructed lightsaber. Roan using the lightsaber of one of the killed Jedi. Both have lost their apprentices in the war. Both have complicated relationships with their mothers and didn't feel at home with the Jedi Order. Both lost their way and found a place outside the Order that they felt more comfortable with. A lot of parallels between the two. Uh, and you can see that throughout the book, as I mentioned earlier, James does a great job of talking about Vader and Anakin's doubts, and you get to see that uh, foiled by Roan's doubts. There's a Jedi, a Jedi Master who's still trying to figure out what is the correct thing to do, and we see another Jedi who's left the Order or is going to leave the Order. Um, and I guess it's interesting. I, I'm not sure if it makes Roan another of the fallen or the lost because he was a master who did leave the order but i don't think it does especially not in roan's book because his belief is that the order is no more and so the order left him rather than him leaving the order but 
The final fight is also where Vader realizes that the suit isn't a prison, it's an outfit, it's a display of his position, and he can use it as a symbol just as much as a lightsaber or a starship. Um, it helps that he's had a chance to modify it and it's reconnected with the Force, so he's not as physically limited by it, uh, but he still has severe limitations in it. Moving on to Palpatine, though, Palpatine has several philosophies that he expresses to Vader in here. For Jedi, understanding leads to power. For Sith, power leads to understanding, which is interesting. One would think that the end goal for Sith is power and for Jedi, understanding. But instead, Palpatine presents those as the routes by which the two factions reach their goals. The Jedi seek more and more knowledge to slowly gather mastery of the Force, whereas the Sith just take the Force, capital F, by brute force, and understand themselves, others, and the shape of the galaxy because of that act. They can see how people respond to their action, and that's how they gain knowledge. Anakin also later asks, what good is power without joy? To which Palpatine responds, power is joy. That's some of Anakin still peeking through rather than Vader. But Palpatine, whose shtick is power brings you everything you want, understanding, joy, etc. I mean, it's an introduction to the creed of the Sith, the Sith Code. Peace is a lie. There's only passion. Through passion, I gain strength. Through strength, I gain power. Through power, I gain victory. Through victory, my chains are broken. The Force shall free me. And that's what Palpatine's trying to impress on Vader. Take the Force. Take what you want. Have power. Be free. Palpatine does downplay the threat of the Jedi because he wants to empower Vader, but for some reason doesn't realize that Vader needs a strong foe to pair up against. Vader isn't a schemer, and so doesn't get rewarded from outsmarting others and making them obsolete and non-threats. Vader gets his sense of power through direct domination, which is a bit more alien to Palpatine. You can see this in Anakin using his mastery of blade and combat as his strongest selling point. I'm actually really curious how Anakin would have fared outside of the Clone Wars and how he would have developed, because the Clone Wars give him a venue where his strength of martial prowess is on great display. And I'm curious if it was a time when, for example, I don't know, there were just a bunch of dance competitions. Would Anakin have become a master of dance and been like, come on, I won 17 dance competitions. I won the 48 dance marathon. Make me a Jedi master already. Um, whereas the war just encourages him to show direct displays of dominance. Um, oh, that's wild. This is huge tangent unrelated to everything. But on the cover of Kenobi, so last week's book, um, there's a picture of Obi-Wan and he's wearing, it, he's still wearing his gauntlets lightsaber ignited and it still has the Jedi crest on the clone gauntlet on his wrist or forearm. And I mean, he certainly wasn't wandering around Pika's claim wearing a Jedi insignia Republic armor. But, I mean, it's part of, like, why is that on the cover? Anyways, um, back to Dark Lord, the Rise of Darth Vader, and not Obi-Wan Kenobi. Um, Palpatine eventually does realize that Vader needs a victory and needs somebody to beat up. And so he does give him the Jedi apprentices to hunt down and turn into fodder. But he also impresses upon Vader the, Vader the rule of two through the Socratic method. He starts with, why not strike me down? Oh, because you need my knowledge. 
Well, why don't you get my knowledge? Okay, that's how you're going to get my knowledge. Great. And what are you going to do then? Strike me down? Good. Hate me? Use that hate. Become stronger. That strengthens the Sith, and it strengthens me because I'm tempered by you. And Vader picks up this message and runs with it because we can see at the end of the book his goal, what's keeping him alive, his motivation is his hatred for Palpatine and the dream of one day striking down Palpatine. Which, good news, he eventually achieves. He gets his dream. Now, moving on to the Jedi. Oli Starstone has a strong connection to the Force, stronger even than Master Shrines. I'm curious if this is something that's common in wartime Padawans. As Shrine says, the war is more than trial enough for any Jedi. And a use, especially use under pressure, hones that which doesn't break from it. And so there are probably a lot of very powerful Padawans and young knights that would have been much weaker had the war not occurred to sharpen them and to bring out the best in them. Of course, there are a lot of Padawans and knights that died because the war existed, and so maybe not greatest thing overall, but for those who survived, they were possibly stronger than they would have been otherwise. Now... What's interesting for the Jedi as a whole is that Palpatine's story is the one that has priority in the galaxy. Uh, even on the Drunken Dancer, which is captained by the mother of a Jedi, the crew accepts the news's version of events as fact. The Jedi shouldn't have attempted a coup or left the temple undefended, and they certainly shouldn't have started the war and brought destruction upon so many. The propaganda is bought into. And that brings up the question of what the responsibility of an individual Jedi is now. It's one that's been asked and addressed a couple of times in a couple different ways in the last handful of books since Order 66. Um, Barden Jusik has found the people he's chosen to fend and fights for them, and in their way, fading into the background. We saw several Jedi try to stand up and fight for themselves the night of the Purge and just get cut down. Atane died trying to save clone troopers, although she was cut down by the Jedi, not the Empire. Uh... Kenobi risks himself in several different times and places and stories, risking Luke as well by showing action. So should they stand up and fight? They have a moral imperative to, right? If you have the ability to defend others, shouldn't you? That's how they've been trained. But doing so means they cut down quickly. See Bol Shattuck's immediate fall on Morkana and the consequences of the Jedi Knights who faced Vader on Kashyyyk. Everybody was defeated. Furthermore, offering themselves as allies is dangerous. It provided the Empire cause to burn down Kashyyyk. Now, the Empire could have found another reason more easily than anything else, but it can still be pinned on the Jedi in this instance. It makes targets of their allies, or, if they were already targets, bumps up their priority and puts them into more danger. The Jedi can't fight on their own, and they can't gather allies, but they have this need to help. Is inaction the same as implicitly supporting the Empire? So they have to find quieter ways to act, which is a challenge given that they don't have experience being quiet, generally. The Jedi could come in with their lightsaber and robes, guarded by two words, Sithis Romanus. No, that's a West Wing reference. Well, the idea stands. They could have just said, Diplomatic immunity. Nope, lethal weapon. Anyways... Stealth didn't work for them. They came in, they boldly declared who they were and said, I have solved the problem, and walked away. Uh, it's something that Anakin and Obi-Wan struggled with repeatedly, and I don't think there's a good solution for it. I think the correct solution is become a rebel and never touch a lightsaber again, and just do good acts. Uh, Chewie sees the Jedi Order as a whole, pre-Order 66, being teared, torn apart 
due to a pledge that superseded their oath to the Force. Uh -huh. They were trapped by their word and their honesty and their need to be appreciated as part of how they were undermined themselves. And so it's something that could have been predicted. Somebody could have looked at the war and been like, this is going to bring about the end of the Jedi. And in fact, I think a couple Jedi are like, oh, this isn't a great look for us. This is dangerous. But they didn't see a better solution. Now, I also want to touch upon clones because I love me my clones. I love, 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 love the joke climber and shrine chair at the beginning. Shrine says, ah, the voice is familiar to the helmeted clone. And the face even more so, says climber as he takes his helmet off. And that's just peak humor in my mind. Speaking of clones being cool, we get another instance of clones being judgmental about Jedi not wearing armor. I know you can block blaster bolts, but what if you also wore armor? Uh, it actually probably would have saved a lot of lives here in Order 66 if they had heavy armor that can deflect just a couple of blaster bolts, because that gives them a couple seconds to activate their lightsaber, block those bolts, dodge out of the way, cut down a couple of the guns, rip them out of their hands with the force. So many options if you can take more than one blaster shot. Uh, more impactfully regarding clones, uh, Roan actually has an answer for Salvo when Salvo asks, what will happen to us clones when the war ends? And he's like, oh, you'll help the Jedi keep the peace. That's not a great answer because, you know, there's still no retirement plan and they're still slave soldiers, but it's better than, I don't know, fertilizer, I guess? Um, Ion Squad, the commando squad, also has the expect a confidence we expect from clones, particularly commandos, along with the individualistic flair that we don't see in most other portrayals of clones outside of the Republic Commando series. We see that the commandos are thinking about the orders and the consequences, while the troopers just respond to commands, which is something that's been explored thoroughly before, but this is a more explicit and less biased look at it. I also want to touch briefly on Order 66. Many Jedi were pulled from the temple in order to help with the Outer Rim sieges, such that the temple was practically deserted, which made it much easier for the clones to take it. This is, of course, part of the plan of Palpatine. Even a hundred Jedi Knights probably would have been almost certainly a massacre for the clones. Now, to be fair, four masters had just died at the hands of Palpatine, which drastically reduced the defenses of the temple. Yoda was off-planet for possibly the first time in the duration of the war other than Dark Rendezvous. Obi-Wan's gone. Anakin's been flipped. Uh, so, there aren't a ton of masters available, but it's just, you know, part of... Just another part of the plan, spreading the Jedi thin and making the temple vulnerable. Now, here's another question. Would clones have temporarily forsaken Order 66 in order to accomplish a mission objective? For example, if they hadn't destroyed the shield generator yet when they got the kill order, would they have executed it? Notwithstanding the fact that Ion Squad did ignore the commands wholly, but if they were going to follow through on them, if they'd gotten it in the middle of the mission rather than after the mission, how would they have responded? Clones generally have the confidence to complete the job on their own, but at this point in the war, they also know what they need from the Jedi and what the Jedi bring to the table. And so they might have been like, we know, we, we know exactly how far we need these Jedi. We don't need them until the end of the mission, so this is where we can stop to spend some resources. And be aware that this is what the Jedi might extract as a payment for their life and might kill some clones and therefore reduce chance of success. My read of the clones is, if they thought they could get away with it, they would, but they would also sacrifice the current mission, whether it be Shield Generator or something else, uh, for the newer, higher priority mission. I think most would immediately shoot, 
however, even at the cost of their own lives, because, you know, good soldiers follow orders, and waiting means there's a chance that the Jedi get the jump on them instead, and that's dangerous. Uh, another large question, what is the effect of peace on the galaxy? And for Palpatine, peace is actually a tool for fear, and I, it's fascinating. By declaring the war over, any attacks are now no longer uh, acts of war, but they're terrorist attacks. You're no longer supposed to expect violence, and so when it happens, it makes it unpredictable and something to be feared. And now that everyone who commits these acts is a criminal instead of easily categorized as the enemy, now it's terrorist neighbor. He can push you-can't-trust-anyone-snitch-on-everyone attitudes. And it's a fascinating thought because you have these expectations of, okay, peace has been declared, and then there's another attack. And while that same attack might have happened earlier, a week ago before peace was declared, you're like, this was an act of an enemy agent. And now there is no enemy. Now, because you weren't involved in the war before, it wasn't important to you before, because the Galactic War was meaningless to so many of its residents, uh, and they so many people were untouched by it. And so now when it's acts of terrorism at home rather than acts of war abroad, it becomes so much more personal and close, and so you become scared, and that feeds into Palpatine's plan. It's interesting how he's able to turn the end of the war into police state, but of course that's also one that's seen frequently in real life, a call for security that is a theft of freedom. Now, towards the end of the war uh, on Mercana, there's also a surge of quality tech that wrecks Separatist forces at this point in the war. Palpatine is ready for it to end, so he's just issuing everything he can. He doesn't need the war to drag on further. Now, Vader crafted his weapon in the shadow of the moonlet under construction, probably the Death Star. It's also why Palpatine authorized the capture of Wookiees. He needs more slave labor for the construction of the Death Star. Tracking down the Jedi on Jaguata, the Separatist broadcast outpost, we get Darth Vader's first, I have you now, along with the clenched fist. Now, he's saying this from Coruscant, but he has the location of the Jedi, and so he doesn't actually have them, and does in fact lose them for weeks or months, maybe? Um, as mentioned during the chase on Alderaan, Vader deflects blaster bolts with his hand because he's a show-off. We knew this. Also, his lightsaber throw is excessive and showy, and a surprising technique for Roan. Tossing your lightsaber away is not a commonly seen technique, because very frequently your opponent, if they're a Jedi, can just reach out with the Force and grab it. But Vader has enough confidence in his strength to throw out his weapon against Roan. What is interesting is Vader's identity isn't known among the Empire, particularly the military or intelligence, and particularly not his history. Military commanders think of him potentially as an apprentice of Count Dooku. They see the Red Blade and make an assumption. Technically, he's the apprentice of the apprentice of the apprentice of Dooku, so, like, it's in the same family. It's also weird that the source of this rumor is the Special Forces Legion that attacked the temple with him, because that's the 501st, and the 501st has been with Anakin since day one of the war, so they know he's Anakin, and when he went to the temple, they he wasn't, you know, all Vaderfied yet. He was still wearing his black and browns of the Clone Wars, and his hair was still in flowing locks, so like, the 501st knows who he is, but rumors are taking hold and Palpatine approves of the rumors because it adds to Vader's reputation to have that mystery around him. 
throughout the book we get a mention of Armand Sard and Saint Pistage here and there as director of security and as Palpatine's right hand. Oh, this is actually kind of huge. Uh, C-3PO was memory wiped. R2-D2 was explicitly not. The protocol droid had its memories wiped. No comments about the astromech. I'm curious if R2-D2 ever gets his memory wipes. He had to have had his memory wiped. That or he just committed to not snitching because he understands the gravitas of that. There are other astromechs uh, in Star Wars who have information about their owner's dads and keep silent until the right moment. So maybe R2's just good about not snitching. Uh, we also have some Wookiee facts. There's a clan of astrocartographers, the Kratuvak, who know routes that neither the Separatists nor the Republic knew, and therefore neither, nor the Empire. Chewie actually shares some of that info with Han, which is what allowed for his prosperous career as a smuggler before joining the Rebellion. As young as age 12, Wookiees are self-sufficient in the wilds of Kashyyyk. They're just like, Wookiee parents are like, yeah, you just go out into the wilds. You'll survive for as long as you need. Bye! And Wookiees can live to be as old as 400. Chewie is roughly 200, 250 during the end of the Clone Wars and the beginning of the Galactic Civil War. Now, if you enjoyed this book, Force Unleashed has more of Darth Vader as well as a bit of the hunter-hunted dynamic. Shadows of the Empire maybe has it. I'm trying to remember a book that I haven't read in a very long time. Uh, it does have the two competing aspects of Hunter and Hunted, if I recall correctly, as does, of course, Darth Maul Shadowhunter. Next episode will be Coruscant Knights number one, Jedi Twilight by Michael Reeves, the author of Shadowhunter, as well as the MedStar duology. If you like this episode and want to hear more of my ramblings, please be sure to check that box to like, subscribe, favorite, or whatever it is your app calls it, and check back in next time. You can contact me on Twitter at Jedi underscore archives, or email me at podcast at fatoffgames.com. I'm Jonah. The archives are incomplete.